I'm grateful to be uh, have this opportunity, the next three hours of your time that Dave has given me. Now, I promise I won't go that long. If I do, then I think Frank is probably going to throw a shoe at me or something. But uh, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, thank you for your word. We thank you for these words that you've given to us, your people. We thank you that they are words of life, and we thank you that they point to your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would exalt him in all his glory through this preaching. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Towards the end of the book of Acts that uh, Luke recorded, we learn about an event from the Apostle Paul's life after Paul had been tried by Festus and King Agrippa. And Paul was deported to Italy. He had uh, appealed to see the emperor, and he was on his way, setting sail. And after setting sail, he, with a number of other shipmates, they encountered a violent northeaster storm. The captain and crew tried to secure the ship, and the next day they jettisoned cargo for fear that they would run aground on Syrtis, which is a sandy, shallow shoal. Luke then records these jarring words. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no tempest lay on us, no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Of course, we know that stars were crucial for sailors to navigate safely under evening cover. When the stars disappeared, especially for days on end in the midst of violent storms, it's no wonder that hope would be abandoned. And sometimes in the course of our lives, we experience challenges so distressing that it seems as though the stars have disappeared and our ability to navigate is lost or severely compromised. Sometimes those experiences in our lives are so disorienting, we may wonder whether the Lord has abandoned us and if we should abandon hope ourselves. So the question I think our passage raises for us is, are these how are we to regard our suffering, our hurts? Are they a sign of God's rejection? Are they a sign of defeat? But our passage this morning teaches us that there is a purpose, a divine purpose, behind such heartache. So hear these words. These are the words of God this morning from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 17. This is the word of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands 
and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Our passage this morning is written to tell us that the perplexities and heartache believers in the Lord Jesus Christ endure in this life are used for the Lord for our good to conform him to the image of our Savior. This passage was written to put the stars back in the dim night sky, to orient us to the Lord who alone is our sovereign Father. The context of this passage is the hostility the letter's recipients were facing and the suffering that came as a result of personal opposition to their loyalty in Christ. Chapter 10, verses 32 through 35, give us a glimpse of the range and intensity of their suffering. Affliction, public reproach, imprisonment, plundered property. We too, sitting here this morning, may feel burdened by opposition to our faith. We may wonder what the Lord's purpose is behind it. But while the original context points to suffering as a consequence to hostility, we should understand, I think, that the painful experiences we endure are broader than just those that uh, come as a consequence of those who oppose the faith. Paul makes this point in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What Paul's point is that the sufferings of this age that we experience include every pain and hurt and heartache that comes our way this side of glory while we are still in our mortal bodies. And so this passage is written to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to endure. Our author, being the wise pastor that he is, knows the challenges to our faith can produce fatigue, and so he encourages his readers first by pointing to the example of Christ. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And of course, we know that like the original readers, Jesus himself experienced total hostility from those who opposed him, and yet Jesus endured and persevered. And so we are exhorted to consider how Jesus endured so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And that's why the author encourages us to consider, to ponder, to think upon Jesus, to cast our gaze upon our Savior. When we are opposed, when we suffer, we must look to Jesus, for who for us and our salvation endured all things. We can endure because he endured and we belong to him. We know that Jesus was fully divine and fully human, and we marvel at this stunning revelation. But I think it might be a popular view among evangelicals that Jesus' humanity wasn't real. We confess that he was truly human, but it seems like it's just an illusion. We think of Jesus as never really suffering, perhaps on the cross or prior to the cross, but in his life, living generally a life of, of suffering free, that he never really felt the pangs of hunger or the emotional agony of being betrayed, we need to keep in mind that Jesus' divinity never swallows up his humanity. It doesn't reduce it. It doesn't nullify it. 
Being fully divine didn't make Jesus impervious to weariness in body and in emotion. So just a few chapters earlier in Hebrews, we read that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weakness because he has been in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus, fully divine, fully human, yet without sin. And the hostility that our Savior endured was great. Such hostility is the word that's translated from the Greek term in verse 3, which emphasizes the intense scorn that our Savior faced. While the original readers hadn't yet shed blood in their struggle against sinful opposition in verse 4, nevertheless, Jesus had, literally, in his life and in his torture and crucifixion. The opposition to Jesus was so great because the Son of God had come in the flesh to save sinners, and the opposition wanted him defeated. They hated his plan, and they hated him. But surely our author recites this verse for us, writes this verse for us, because Jesus is an example for us, his beloved children, to emulate. Jesus suffered and endured. We suffer and must endure. That is true, but that point by itself isn't the main point. Verse 4, rather, wants us to grasp this point, that believers who are in union with this Christ, the one who suffered, are enabled by the Holy Spirit to endure in our suffering. It's only by virtue of our union with Christ that we can endure. That's why the text tells us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Paul, the apostle, puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 11. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be, also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What Paul is saying is our suffering is a participation in Christ's sufferings. And Paul makes this point emphatic in Philippians 3.10. He writes that we share his sufferings. We share Jesus' sufferings. Believers, by virtue of our union with Jesus, share in Christ's sufferings now, even while we have also participated in his death and resurrection. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transpasses, made us alive together with Christ, past tense. By grace you have been saved and raised us up, past tense, with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the reason why our author tells us that we're not to grow weary or faint-hearted, is because we belong to Christ, who, though he knew weariness in body and hostility from those who opposed him, he endured perfectly, never sinning, always faithful, and he did it for us, in our place, for our sake. This is good news. This is gospel for us, because it means that the hardships we experience in this life are not in vain or accidental. They are the very share in the suffering of Christ. Now, that doesn't make them redemptive and doesn't mean that our suffering earns God's favor. Rather, it means that it's precisely in our weakness that we experience the strength of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Our suffering is the occasion for God's sanctifying grace rather than an obstacle to it. Now, the next verse reads something like a backhanded compliment. You've suffered, 
but you've got a long way to go. It almost reads like that. In your struggle against sin, verse 4, or sinful opposition, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. But it's actually a word of encouragement. What he's saying is take heart. Your challenges are great, but you can endure. And this is good news for us as well. Whether the pain in our lives is relatively mild and tolerable or extreme and disorienting, our Lord knows our grief. What makes suffering endurable then ultimately isn't taking a stoical attitude or exercising superhuman strength, but knowing that we belong to Christ, the one who endured perfectly. To further encourage the beloved in Christ, the text goes on, verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And here, the writer of, all, of Hebrews is quoting from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, that proverbial book written by the sage king to his son for fathers to sons to train them in wisdom. And what these particular verses highlight is the more basic theme of Proverbs, that all instruction and wisdom, growth, confirmation, and a word discipline comes ultimately not from human fathers, but from the Lord. These verses specifically instruct God's people not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord and not to grow weary. Let me note, too, that the word discipline, it's translated discipline in English translations, is the word paideia, which simply means training or instruction or confirmation. So the idea of, of uh, punishment uh, might be a, a shade of meaning, but it's not the whole meaning. It's basically training a person in godliness. So why, why are we not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord and not grow weary? The reason why is because this padea discipline, this confirmation, this instruction, this training, is actually evidence of God's fatherly love for us. It proves our sonship, that we belong to him. I think it's rather striking that the author implicitly relates or even identifies the hostility opposition stemming from persecutors with the Lord's discipline. In other words, he's making identity between the hostility that comes at the hand of persecutors to these first century Christians with the Lord's discipline. What he's saying is this, the hostility you first century Christians are facing from those who oppose the gospel and you is at the same time, without confusing their evil activity with the Lord's good action, and without minimizing the evil of their actions and the culpability and responsibility they bear witness or bear for their actions, is at the same time your father's discipline. And again, recalling Paul's word that all of our suffering, pain, and travails in this world, not just those that come by way of opposition, are a part of this disciplining uh, activity of the Lord. But we need to be careful here. Never should we think that evil perpetrated against us is good. Evil is evil. It is not, nor cannot be good. Yet God himself is good always and never does evil, even while he has decreed it and orders it for our good. Perpetrators of evil will be judged justly, but our Father overrides evils done to us in order to achieve his good end, conforming or disciplining his sons into the image of Jesus. So here we get to the crux of the passage. Christians are called to endure hostility, opposition, and every kind of pain in their lives, whether coming from the hands of others or even from our own 
sinful errors, precisely because it is a part of the Lord's work in conforming us to the holy image of his Son. Paul echoes this in his words uh, from Philippians. This is his personal ambition, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul knew that conformity to Jesus meant conformity to Jesus in his suffering, because it was precisely in suffering that Paul would know the resurrected Lord. Jesus, who is the very embodiment of holiness, who, as the Gospel of John tells us, sanctified or set himself apart for the task of saving and sanctifying his people, John 17, 19, is the one in whom we have a share uh, of holiness, verse 10. God's discipline, this confirmation, making us like Christ, is his all-perfect superintending of the suffering in our lives. It doesn't show that we're illegitimate sons, rather it proves that we belong to him. Such was the experience of Joseph many centuries before. His brothers hated him, for, uh, and the, their hatred for him was so deep that they conspired to kill him. It was only when they realized that, they, that their killing him would bring them harm that they decided instead to sell him into slavery, which we know eventually brought him into Egypt, where the Lord was with him in covenantal kindness. Later, when the brothers meet face-to-face -face with Joseph, they wonder naturally if Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. But then we know these lines. Joseph replied, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And our passage then directs our gaze to how we are made holy. How does this type of instruction that the Lord designs for us, how, how does it achieve its end of making us holy? And this passage teaches that one way, perhaps the main way, the way the New Testament points to us is through the pains we endure in Christ as those who belong to him. As we walk through challenges by faith in Christ, suffering puts to death our disordered loves. By our Heavenly Father's loving power, we're weaned off of our idolatries, our impurities. Friends, no one but the man or woman in Christ can grasp this point. This concept is foreign to the unbeliever. The unbeliever, if I can speak in general terms, wants to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. If pain is to be endured, it's done so without regard to its proper aim to make us like Christ. So Augustine, the great 5th century Christian thinker, criticized his contemporaries, the Stoics, precisely on this point. The Stoics claim that true well-being or happiness is characterized by self-sufficiency, indifference to pain, and Augustine argued the Christian position that suffering and joy for the Christian were commingled in this life, that glory doesn't come without suffering and suffering without glory. The Christian hope is in the life to come when we will meet our Savior face to face, but that there is joy inexpressible even now. In disciplining, shaping, conforming us into Christ's image, God is treating us as sons, as his beloved adopted children. In verses 7 through 11, the author draws comparisons and contrasts between earthly fathers and our own heavenly father. Earthly sons are disciplined, illegitimate children are not. And we're, we respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us because we recognize that discipline is crucial to our well-being, to our maturity, and to our growth. We respect them for it, and we see their efforts as worthy of our respect. 
And of course, this is just an illustration. We can think of lots of examples in our own lives as fathers or as mothers where we fail to do this, but it's purely an illustration to point to uh, the author's greater point. By the same measure, our author argues, that we shouldn't we subject ourselves to our Heavenly Father's discipline? The discipline that comes from our Heavenly Father comes from the Father of Spirits. Verse 9. That sounds like a very mystifying concept here, but the idea is that God is transcendent. He is over all, even the angelic beings, even the invisible beings. He is the Father of the Spirits. A God whose transcendent existence over all things gives him the wise vantage point. With his supreme power, he overrides evil for our good. His ever-faithful love moves him to consider his children's ultimate good, even while he brings himself glory. Our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time, verse 10, but even at its best, it's fallible and imperfect, not always able to bring about our good, even with the best intentions. But, and this is the contrast he draws, the discipline from our Heavenly Father is for our good. It's perfect. It yields his perfectly designed result, conformity to Jesus, which is implied in verse 10. Indeed, all discipline, shaping, confirmation from our Father is painful, and our author is quick to mention that. He doesn't gloss over the pain, the real pain that comes into believer's life. Okay? This is real pain that is involved. Sometimes astoundingly so, this pain comes. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained in it. Our Father's discipline does seem painful at times, and the text emphasizes that point. But then it points to the promise, the promise that such discipline yields this peaceful fruit of righteousness. The peaceful fruit of righteousness signals a shift in perspective from personal holiness to outward corporate expression. Righteousness here refers to our horizontal relations with our fellow believers in Christ, with whom we have a share in holiness. So with a shift in perspective from personal holiness to corporate expression, our author continues to encourage believers in Christ. Therefore, lift uh, your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And here we need to have caution that this is not a call to do the impossible. It's not a call to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Not least is it a call to gird ourselves up when your life has been hit by a tsunami. Rather, this is a call of grace that finds a corporate expression. In other words, the same gospel that drives the first, seven, uh, first 11 verses is inherent or implicit in these words as well. We are called to seek a wholeness that finds expression concretely in our lives and outward in corporate expression. A wholeness that's marked by godly purity and deed, word, and thought, reflective of God's own moral perfection. Well, as we see in verses 5 uh, through 11, focus on God as the primary actor, the one who grants us holiness through his activity, holiness as gift. Verses 12 through 17 
The emphasis, God is, of course, not out of the picture at all, but the emphasis is on believers as the primary actors, ones who are given grace to live out holiness concretely. Verse 10, to illustrate this, God disciplines us so that we can have a share in his holiness. And then verse 11, believers are urged to strive for holiness. This seems perplexing. How can we strive for what we already have? The biblical answer is that we are to be who we are. We are sanctified once and for all. That is set apart, taken into possession by the Lord. We are sanctified once and for all completely in Christ. So a chapter earlier in chapter 10, verse 10, our author writes, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God takes the believer in full possession into himself, to himself, fully in Christ, and declares us pure and set apart for him and for his purposes once and for all, never to be revoked. So we are to be who we are. You are holy, so now live out that holiness in your relationships. Verses 12 through 13, this kind of mystifying metaphor that's being used here. And his point is, is that you, you can endure suffering. You can walk straight. That's the idea of the metaphor here. Because you are joined to Christ. You're in union with your Savior. So then walk in God's grace, taking full advantage of God's favor, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Holiness and purity in our lives needs to be put into action. And this kind of holiness won't allow for strife in the body of Christ or even with those who oppose the gospel. Now, the Christian's duty is to strive for peace because that is the way of the Savior. Verse 15, as we've already seen, we're to strive for holiness, holiness which is both a gift that's been granted fully in Christ at the moment that we are converted, and yet we're to strive for it without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is essential to being in the Lord's presence because God's holiness sets him apart from all impurity. So the question is, is this a veiled threat? Or is our author taking back what he's given, taking back this gifted holiness which has been given in the first several verses? Is he saying that unless your holiness is perfected in your life that you won't see the Lord? Well, that's, that can't be right, not after what he's been arguing these first several verses. The Christian is holy fully once and for all in Christ because of the finality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. But we are to cultivate or to live out that holiness in our lives so that in Christ we will grow in our love for our holy Lord. Because we belong to Christ, we want to see his gifted holiness worked out concretely in life and thought. And so we're further... Uh, encouraged as a corporate body, not just as individuals, but as a corporate body in verse 15, to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Or as other translations put it, don't let anyone fall short of grace. What he's saying, he's not saying that you can earn or lose grace. Okay? Not something that by our effort that we gain or lose. Rather, that God's grace is available to the needy, which is all of us. All of us qualify for that. All of us qualify as needy and that we, each of us, has an obligation not only to allow the needy, not to allow the needy to neglect it. In other words, to encourage each other when we are broken down, to seek God's grace, to seek Christ. We are all called to remind each other, 
each one of us of our need for Christ to point each other to him as the source, the means, and the goal of our sanctification. Then he goes on, further, we are warned not to allow the root of bitterness to spring up and cause trouble. Here we're warned about the dangers of a hard heart. That's just what the metaphor of rooted bitterness means. Positively, this is a call to have supple hearts, hearts that are formed by the Lord, by the Spirit, hearts that are being conformed by our loving Father, that love his instruction, that love his training, that love his discipline, and that cower at the face of sin and seek him instead. Verse 16, see to it that you are not sexually immoral. I think he picks this one out because it's one that plagues all believers. In other words, don't treat each other like objects. Don't treat each other like commodities for consumption, but rather treat each other as image of God, as imago dei, and as with mutual respect, as precious, treating each other's bodies as those that not only belong to the person, but belong to the Lord. We're to be aware of the temptation of Esau. It just seems like all he did was give up his food for, uh, uh, give up his promise for food. But the problem with the temptation of Esau is that he hardened his heart so much that he rejected what we could say is the gospel, the promise of covenant faithfulness, the promise of fellowship with the Lord, and he did it just for temporal blessings, temporal goods, which left his heart no chance for future repentance because it had been so hardened. This warning here, believers in Christ read this, and they don't want to be like Esau. They run to the cross. They repent. Okay, so it's these types of warnings about per- people like Esau are ones that are meant to provoke the believer in Christ to run to the cross. And if you find yourself repenting, you know you are not Esau or one of his kind. You belong to the Lord. That is a sign that you are that you belong to the Lord and you repent and turn from your sin. That's all it takes. You look to the Lord, you ask for forgiveness and you seek your identity in Jesus alone. The only answer to these temptations that's given in this uh, 12 through 17 is Christ. That's the only solution, is Christ, Jesus himself, to turn in faith and repentance to him, because he is our holiness, and he is the one in whom we can, ha- we can find strength in time of trouble. I think it's implicit in what we've been talking about. The gospel transforms the Christian's vision of life. The difficulties of, the, of life, which are real and they're pronounced and they're uh, genuine, never become less difficult for the believer. Pain is pain for the Christian too. But in it, in our pains and our complexities, our difficulties, we can know that they are ultimately for our good producing in us fruit befitting the one to whom we are joined now and forever into eternity. And we have joy now, joy inexpressible, because we belong to Christ fully now. Let's go to our Lord now in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Father, we are in awe of the way that you arrange and move every event in our life for our good and for your glory. Father, we marvel at it. We're in awe of it. We don't completely understand how you can take evil and things that are genuine pains and yet use them for our good, but we know that you do. And so, Father, we pray 
Lord, that we would be conformed to your Son. Oh, Father, we honor him, we glorify him. We pray this in his name. Amen.